Well, we come now to the Bible, and we're looking at Psalm 121. This is the second in our series on the Psalms of Ascent. We've called uh, the Psalms of Ascents. We've called the series My Journey. And uh, last week we looked at My Journey to the Truth and letting God's Word speak truth about who we are rather than what other people say about us. And uh, this week we're looking at My Journey to find help. It's a wonderful psalm, and uh, let's uh, stand then as we come to the Bible. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Would you please sit down? Well, with the best will in the world, uh, there still comes a time when all of us must realize that at some point, we simply need help. Uh, Perhaps there really do exist macho men who have sufficient true grit never to shed a tear or cry out in the dark for fright. But I, for one, suspect that that image has far more to do with fantasy than reality. The myth of the unconquerable hero pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, facing adversity with a steely glint in his eye. Rambo-like. That myth is just that, a myth. Of course, there have been great men and women who have shown us the extent to which the human spirit can face adversity and come through on the other side. But when you read the biographies of a George Washington or an Alexander the Great, what is remarkable is not so much they did not need resources to accomplish what they accomplished, but when they needed those resources, they found them. Where do you go when you need help? Perhaps you um, harbor a secret uh, suspicion that it's not quite Christian to ever admit that you need help or mature to admit that you need help. 
Maybe you remember that it was Benjamin Franklin who said that God helps those who help themselves. Perhaps for some of us here this morning, asking for help sounds more like desperation than, you know, that good old-fashioned idea of putting yourself up by your own bootstraps. And I certainly don't want to encourage any more rather pathetic sort of blubbering wimpishness than we already have these days. A sort of tendency to give way to what you feel in the mistaken impression that because you feel it, it must be true. Certainly feelings can be an indicator of truth about something or other, but on the other hand, they can just indicate that you ate a rather bad lunch. And even if they are more profound than that, they could be just saying that those feelings that you have need to be worked at to bring them into line with God's Word. The psalmist is crying out, help! Now you see, these psalms here are all intended to give us the ability, I think, to to manage our feelings so that they are brought into line with reality. And in particular, this psalm, the second in the series of the Psalms of Ascents, I think is intended to give us the resources to find help when that is what we need. Sometimes this psalm is called the Traveler's Psalm, and indeed it has often been used to bless those who are going on a journey. They're, they're coming and they're, and they're going. Sure them of God's watching care. Yet, in another way, all of these psalms are actually traveling psalms, in a sense. They're, they're traveling on the pilgrimage towards God, uh, first perhaps used as the pilgrims went up to Jerusalem for one of the great festivals that you can read about in the Old Testament And afterwards, perhaps adopted as the uh, Jewish uh, people returned from their exile to Babylon and and sung these same psalms. And it seems to me that they were designed by God in general, therefore, to help us journey closer to Him in our relationship with Him and avoid the many pitfalls and difficulties and diversions and distractions that can prevent us keeping going in our walk with God the Lord. And you see, one of those pitfalls that often comes up on our uh, spiritual journey along the way is the, the pitfall, if you like, of never being willing to actually ask for help. Now, I love the sort of determination and the, the spirit represented by Franklin's famous quotation about God helping those who help themselves. And in, in a way, I wonder whether we need a little bit more of that sort of attitude these days and less of the, I have a right to help even though I've done nothing to deserve it, you know. It reminds me a little bit of the well-known uh, British poem by Rudyard Kipling called If, perhaps you know it, If, he famously wrote, you do this, that, and the other in a sort of dogged, determined way. If, in one of his lines, he said, you look at triumph and failure and treat those two imposters just the same. If you do all this, then, my son, Kipling said, you will be a man. The idea being that 
True manliness was that kind of stoicism against all the odds keeping going. And maybe we do need a bit more of the Rocky Balboa attitude. Getting up and keeping fighting, whatever. Perhaps not the Rambo feeling, but... But the reality is that God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who know they need help. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. You see, that's the first step, the most remarkable step that we find in this, uh, this psalm. He actually does cry out for help. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now, counselors all over the world will tell you that in some ways this uh, step here in the first verse is really the most important step to take. To actually acknowledge that there is something that is beyond your own personal resources and you need help with it. Pastors will say the same thing, especially when we're dealing with a clear uh, habitual sin, a bondage that needs breaking. To actually come and say, look, I need help with this, that's that's the first and most important step sometimes. And you see, the idea that you can always fix everything yourself has caused the breakdown of more marriages, the heartbreak of more people, the disaster of more businesses than perhaps any other idea on the face of the planet. Pride is the first victim of failure, yes, but is also its frequent cause too. Pride goes before a fall. But if it is important to admit that we all need help from time to time, then it is also very important we go to the right place to find help. While various uh, translations handle the second part of the first verse slightly differently, depending on whether the idea that they uh, impute behind it is that the hills or the mountains to which uh, the psalmist is looking are, are positive places to look towards or rather negative places. In other words, Are they the mountains surrounding Jerusalem glimpsed as the pilgrim gets closer to his final destination with a gleam of ardor and joy as he he comes to the end of of his journey? Are they the mountains that the weary soldier might look up to from the valley beneath, hoping that his Jewish compatriots would ride over them to his aid like the sort of cavalry coming to rescue him? Or are they more like the mountains of the high places where throughout Israelite history there was the temptation to go back to Canaanite religion with all its disgusting practices? Well, we're not told clearly here, and perhaps we shouldn't put too much stock in in one or other way of looking at it. The point through that is that these mountains are where you look when you need help. You look up. It's a help. But you mustn't stop at the mountains. Nature is intended to take you, designed by 
nature's God, it's intended to take you to its creator. Now, there's a place for an innocent diversion, a a walk in the woods or along the prairie path or even out to Colorado where they actually have mountains. Uh, And there's even a place for innocent cultural diversion like a good book or fun movie. And escapes like that can be fine, healthy even, but they're not the solution. Looking to the mountains is certainly a sign that you feel the need for help, but it's not the help that you need. What you need is not just the tranquility of bubbling brook or pretty landscape or even a momentary sweet dreamless sleep. Because the trouble for those who tend to stay looking at the mountains for help is that they can find that the escape tends to get more and more like escapism in order to dull the pain inside of their crisis. Such people start to look for more permanent forms of escapism, typically. Quitting their job and going traveling. Starting to self medicate in one way or another. Constantly checking the scores on the internet for your favorite sports team. No doubt sport is so popular because it gives us a momentary escape from our real issues. Bread and circuses. That was the ancient Roman way to control the uh, hoi polloi, the crowd. Now we have pork added to the bills of Congress. And of course, the Super Bowl. Nothing wrong in itself with an innocent sport of diversion. But we must go further. The help is not in the hills, it's in the hills God, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, now we come to the part of the psalm where the first person switches to the third person, where the person talking, I, is now talked to by someone else. So it switches, doesn't it? He will not let your foot slip. An interesting part of the Bible to be reading on such a snowy morning. Uh, The Lord watches over you, and so on. Now, we don't know why exactly it is that uh, this switch takes place from I to the other sort of voice speaking to the psalmist. Some scholars say it's an internal dialogue, as if the psalmist is kind of talking to himself, saying, come on now, look to God. He won't let you down. Let me tell you why, self. In that view, it's a soliloquy, an internal dialogue that's going on. Other scholars think it was originally more choral and antiphonal structure, uh, technically. That is, one group of singers was answering the soloist with a response. The, the soloist said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. My help comes to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the, the, the choir came in with, he will not let your foot slip. And perhaps the bigger whole congregation, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Both those are possibilities, whether soliloquy or antiphonal, and in a sense it doesn't really matter. The question of where to look for help 
And the answer to that, to God, either way, whether soliloquy or antiphonal, is now confirmed by a response about who God is, about his character, about his commitment. Now, you see, in essence, this psalm is simply saying that when we really need help, we've got to look to God. But unless that statement is shored up with some pretty rigorous theology, it can become painfully trite, even potentially damaging. Just trust God, someone can say, like a band-aid applied to a hemorrhage. So, so he does more than that. First, he tells himself that this God is the maker of everything. So when we say trust God, we're not saying trust one of the gods. We're talking about something, someone entirely different. He is the maker, not a spirit of the air who dances this way and that in accord with capricious fortune, who's at the whim of the dictates of earthly powers and natural events. No, he's the rock-solid creator of heaven and earth, all of reality. That's who he is, then his commitment, then second. Not only is he the creator, he is the covenant God. So verses 3 and 4 are saying, you can be sure that God will not let your foot slip because this God is the God in his commitment who has promised to look after his people and if you are one of his people, then he will look after you. Jesus makes the same point when he tells the parable of the 99 sheep and the one lost sheep. God is the God who will not let a single person of his people fall. So you may feel in your desperation, if you're being honest, that you are alone, that everyone else is fine in church this morning. But God knows, and he not only knows, he gave his blood for his people. And in dying for his people, as a part of his people, he will never let you individually be snatched out of his hand. So you can go to God for help. He's the creator He's the covenant God. He's the watcher. Uh, Theology is very well and extremely important, but it can seem a little bit dry sometimes. And so the psalmist in his self-talk here, or perhaps others talking to him to apply God's truth to his situation and need for help, the psalmist now begins to develop metaphor, picture language. You see, so often the imagination needs to be retuned when we need help. So he's saying to himself, God is his keeper. He is his watcher. The word for keep runs through the rest of the psalm, and the word for watch is the same root word, and the two ideas are connected here. He is keeping you. He is watching over you. He is looking after you. The picture then of standing guard, eyes open, neither slumbering nor sleeping, becomes a powerful imagination of what God is doing. 
You see, one of the root difficulties of trusting God and going to God for help is that you cannot see God. That's sometimes why people tend to watch movies rather than pray, or go out and party rather than pray, or even go and talk to someone else instead of rather than because of praying to God and in the context of reliance upon God. God cannot be seen. But what if he sends word that he sees you? So God's people stuck in Egypt. The Bible tells us that God looked. Or Numbers chapter 6, the priestly, famous priestly blessing that in some ways this psalm reflects over and over again goes the Lord bless you and keep you same idea the Lord make his face shine his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace he's looking now of course we live by faith not by sight but God does not he sees It's a bit like the psalmist is being assured like a child who is afraid to go to sleep. And the parent says, don't worry, I'll stay in the room tonight and watch over you. And God is saying, I'm always in the room watching over you. That might sound a little weird, even scary, and and I understand that, but it is help. And of course, God is a good God. And so we can sleep because God does not. We can travel because God knows the way. We can keep going because God will not let our foot slip. He is constantly watching. Now, we'll consider that a little bit, a little bit more in a moment. But the psalmist uses one other metaphor here to help himself, if it is self-talk, which I rather think it is, Uh, the metaphor here of shade. Now, of course, in the Middle East, the sun is dangerous. Uh, The heat there can be blinding and and sunstroke can can be something that kills you. And so shade is a powerful metaphor of God's protection. Uh, God is the psalmist shade at his right hand, the right hand being the place in battle where you needed protecting because the shield was held in the left hand. It's easy to understand, I think, the metaphor of protection from the sun, but what of protection from the moon by night? Uh, In the ancient world, it's true, the moon was believed to have potentially deranging effects on people. So moonstruck in the New Testament is is the literal translation of, of the description in a couple of places of epilepsy. And we have a residue of the same idea today when we use the term lunatics. Uh, That is originally meaning those who have succumbed to the malign influence of the lunar rays of the moon. Uh, Maybe, but more likely though, it seems to me, this is again metaphor, picture language for the dangers of traveling by day, sunstroke, and the dangers of traveling by night, bandits, thieves, robber. God is the watching protection at the right hand, as a shield or shade for both day and night dangers. But you see, as the psalm comes to its beautiful poetic conclusion, it leaves, though, a very troubling series of questions in my mind and perhaps in yours as well. 
verses 7 and 8 conclude with a total promise for complete protection in every way, at all times, and in all places, forever. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Really? I'm beginning to read a new biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was killed right at the end of the Nazi regime for his part in an assassination attempt on the life of Hitler. Bonhoeffer was a Christian leader, an author, and apparently a rather godly man. And his life is championed now in many places as an example of Christian true grit in the face of evil. And no doubt it should be so championed. But for instance, in the light of this psalm, how did God watch Bonhoeffer's life? No doubt you can look at the famous chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament and say that all those things work together for the good of those who love him. And so Bonhoeffer may have lost his life, but his life was used by God in a remarkable way and his, he now has eternity to enjoy God. He didn't lose out. And so I have no difficulty with that concept. And indeed, many times in the New Testament and in church history, we are taught and shown that the seedbed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. So suffering is not to be thought of as counter to God's purposes, but as a part of God's purposes. Else why are we Christians, people who believe in the crucifixion of the Son of God? If God doesn't have a, a plan for suffering, The health and wealth, so-called gospel, loves to talk of resurrection power, but you don't see the cross at the heart of their preaching much, for if it was, it would trickle down as a massive non-sequitur, does not follow. We worship the king with the crown of thorns, not the golden tiara. Now, such ideas about suffering are difficult, yet coherent. But this psalm doesn't just say what Romans 8 says, that all things will work together for the good of those who love God. This psalm says that nothing bad will happen. All harm. Are we then to believe that the death of a martyr is not truly or finally bad? And I think the answer to that must be yes. There are worse things than dying. There are worse things than losing your job. There are worse things than finding your most precious relationship is breaking down. There are worse things than being hurt, being hurt. But even that is not quite what the psalm is saying. For it says, no hurt. Not there are worse things than that kind of harm. Think with me of the surgeon. The medical doctor about to go into, he's preparing himself to go into surgery. As he goes, he knows he's about to do, in one sense, his patient 
harm. I mean, great harm. He's, he's going to cut open the body of the patient and delve in with surgical tools. The patient will bleed. If there was no anesthetic, the patient would be screaming in pain, strapped to the operating bed. Yet that surgeon rightly believes that he is following the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Harm is not harm when it good does. That, I think, must be what the psalm is saying. Yes, this may hurt. The psalmist's friends are gathered around him talking some sense into him, or he is talking to himself about it. Yes, it may hurt, and that is why you are asking for help. Look at the hills. But don't stop there. Go beyond them. Otherwise, you'll get lost in the escapism of a mountain climb through distracting pleasure. And that will make things even worse for you. Go to the God who made the mountains, who made everything. You may say, what does he care? If you are a Christian, if you commit your life to Jesus, you are a part of God's people. And God has promised and sealed that promise, we know from the New Testament, with his own blood to take care of his people, to look after them, you might say, to watch, to see, and to therefore guard, to be a shade or a shield, you might say, protecting you from the heat of the work of the noonday sun, and the tossing and turning anxiety of the fears of the moonlit night. Yes, my friend, go to him for help. But you say, will that really work in all situations, in all circumstances? You don't understand what I'm going through. Not just then, but even now in the modern world with our modern temptations and difficulties. And not just now, but as far as the human temporal horizon can see. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow forever. And the psalmist says, yes, it will work. Yes, it will. There may be painful things. Of course, the psalmist knows that, otherwise he wouldn't be writing this psalm asking for help from painful things. There may be painful things, but if you entrust yourself to God, then there will never be any final or true harm. That might take some redefinition of harm for you to believe. But then, who is the one truly in harm's way? The miser, atop his mountain of gold, dragonish gleam of avarice in his eye, and destroying his life from the inside out? Or the child of God, making his joyful journey with a song in his heart and a tune on his lips as he walks step by step closer to the eternal joy of the crucified Savior.
I know which I will choose. What about you? Or as the psalmist might say, where are you going to go when you need help? Let's pray together and have a moment of silence for us to lift up our eyes. Yes, to the hills if you like, but beyond them to the maker, your maker, my maker, our creator to God, to your Lord, if you will put your trust in Jesus, it's a part of his covenant people for whom He shed his blood, chosen from all eternity, that he promises to watch over. Were you called out to him for help in the silence? Thank you, Father, that you hear such prayers. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.